Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitlow. And this is episode 35 in our series for 2015, and today's date is October the 2nd, Friday it is. Leon, what's on the program for this week? Well, uh, we've got a terrific interview with uh, Mark McDonald and Mike Wick. Uh, They're both talking about their company, Appster. Which is one of the most successful kind of startup generators in uh, around. I mean, they uh, started in Melbourne, and uh, now they're in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and they're doing pretty well. Oh, yeah. It's got some sort of turnover, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, multi-million dollars now. It's amazing. All in about four years. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Nicholas Green all about innovation, public-private partnerships. Very interesting that is too. It'd be nice to do a bit of a series with uh, Nicholas on that. I think so too. Now, let's listen to Mark McDonald and Mike Wick about Appster. Mark, tell us about uh, setting up a business in San Francisco, what they call the sharks of uh, Silicon Valley. Well, um, yeah, it, it's been quite an adventure, actually. And it's um, and I feel like the things that we've done in this, I feel like, you know, the first thing is launching in Australia and having our roots as an Australian company has really been a massive differentiator and a massive catalyst to what we've done here because literally we're coming from this entire process and the way that we run as a business, almost the Australian way. So, you know, we've, like I've told you guys before, we've never raised capital. We've never, um, we've never actually um, taken on debt as a company. We've always been very lean and very aggressive. Um, and when people realize that we've grown to over 140, 150 staff now, um, without taking on any external capital, they're surprised. So that's always like a positive thing in Silicon Valley. And people are pretty impressed by that because a lot, the, the culture here is very much like start something small, go and raise a huge amount of money and then, you know, go and hire people. It is a little bit challenging because, you know, in, in Melbourne, if you find a great candidate, you know, you can pretty much convince them, you know, with the right salary and the right perks to come join you. In San Francisco, if you have a great candidate and you're in the final stages of interviewing, all of a sudden a Google recruiter or a Facebook recruiter has called them up and you've lost one of your candidates. So, I mean, it's a much more competitive market. But other than that, I mean, our, our, our offering and our brand has been really well taken up. And, you know, I think we're at this stage where we're booked in advance for two to three months in the U.S. So it's very exciting for us. So what specifically do you have to offer them to entice them over? Um, yeah, so... I think that one of the most important things is that as a small business, um, well, I still consider us a startup, we, we can't obviously compete with the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. So what we offer is, you know, number one, um, there's a huge amount of variety. So one day, because we act kind of like a technical co-founder for entrepreneurs and we're like that execution partner, you know, the projects vary on a day-by-day basis. So one day you could be working on a new cryptocurrency platform. The next day you could be trying to rethink how healthcare works. We literally have a client right now It's is actually working on a way to fix the um, – fix the way that doctors communicate in hospitals because the pager system is completely broken. The way that doctors talk on pages and communicate, a lot of doctors don't even use pager systems, actually use things like WhatsApp and Snapchat to send medical records. We've got a client 
working on a solution to fix that. So you work on all of these incredible ideas on a day-to-day basis that have real utility value and very disruptive. So the biggest thing that we offer people over big companies is variety and also like a real startup environment because we're very small still. Um, we're not like Facebook, not like Google, but the, the bureaucracy and, and other things that come from being large companies aren't really apps to yet. I think also the, the offering that we have is differentiated. It's not just an outsourced development company. Right. I mean, the, the value proposition that Appster built in Australia is something that if you look at what we're building here, we're increasing the number of value wedges that we have. So it resonates still pretty uniquely and well differentiated from a company that's coming in and saying, hey, we can do outsourced development. We're just not even in that bucket anymore. And that's something that really does resonate. It gets to a tier of entrepreneur that has been unable to be served by Silicon Valley because of the... You know, it's interesting when you look at it, it's the size of the venture capital funds has gotten so large that they can't touch the smaller entrepreneur anymore because they need to put so much money to work in order to make it worth their time and to get back to their limited partners that they can't touch a, a, an idea and see if they can build it. Um, everything's got to be, can it be a billion dollars and can we put a hundred million dollars to work? And that's just, that's a very high bar. Um, and Appster comes in at that point and we really have a very differentiated offering. So you don't have much competition in your in your area. It's kind of new for the United States, is it, Mike? Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, you know, it, and Silicon Valley was a very interesting place to pick to open up Appster here because it's kind of in the heart of entrepreneurship, the heart of the VC economy. I mean, everything about it, you would think Appster is just going to be in this melee of companies that are all doing what we're doing. And in in fact, that would have been the case maybe 10 years ago where the, the funds were small enough to actually come after and deal with companies that are smaller. But there's been so much growth in fund size um, that we have something that's very uniquely positioned right now. So I think the time is right to candidly positively disrupt some of the, some of the way that uh, VCs are doing seed and A stage funding because we, we become a partner of the VC in Silicon Valley. But that's unique to hear. Tell us something about the VC scene over there compared to, say, how it is in Australia. What, what's your what's your observations, Mark? Sure. Well, um, I can speak of this with some authority too because uh, I, I was a VC uh, with Ignition Partners for a while in here, and, and well, it was based in Seattle, but we had a small office down in the Bay Area as well. I'd say there's a couple things that are different. One, the the sophistication level of the VCs is incredibly high because they're in the middle of seeing literally hundreds of companies a week coming up with ideas and trying to pitch them. Their ability to see mega trends and to pick is very, very high. They've evolved a feeder network that is, you know, between Kleiner and Sequoia, um, and Battery, where it's, you know, one guy generally knows that the deals of the other guy are going to be really good. So you end up with this step-up function in valuation and funding that just takes certain companies and propels them into the stratosphere more or less by just total capital invested. Um, and it's really, it's, it's a very unique dynamic here that just doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, the third dynamic is actually the slightly negative one, which is when you're looking at a business from a evaluating whether to invest in it perspective. There's a certain cost associated with doing that evaluation, and there's a certain cost of once you make the investment, what's it going to take in terms of manpower in order to go to the board meeting, stay on top of the company, and just do the stuff that a VC is supposed to do as an active investor. 
Well, that stuff costs the same, whether it's a million-dollar investment or a hundred-million-dollar investment. So you really look at it from a return on capital perspective, and a VC who's got billions of dollars to invest, I mean, how many, how many companies do they have to invest in if they're only going to be writing one to five-million-dollar checks, if they've got $200 million in their fund to invest, right? It just takes too long, and it's impossible for them to man it. And that, I think, is a dynamic that's very, very unique to Silicon Valley VCs, and just doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Mark, style of business that Appster developed in Australia, has that fitted in reasonably well in Silicon Valley, or have you had to modify it? Um, that's a great question. From from our perspective, um, I always say that it was really a blessing for us to start in Australia because we really thought about things differently to a lot of Silicon Valley-based companies. Um, in Australia, because, as, as a lot of us know, the venture capital early-stage funding environment isn't quite as strong as it is perhaps in Europe or in the U.S., you know, there's really a focus on a lot more bootstrap where you know you're building a company off the co-founders investment or a couple of friends or family so there's a massive focus on the lean startup um, and the principles of building not a huge platform from day one but building a really clean and tight minimal viable product so being being really clean being really scrappy about bringing something to market that adds the most value. The process that we always have with clients in Australia was how do we deliver the most bang for buck as a as a company and not act like an outsourced development company, but almost act like a technical co-founder for these entrepreneurs. So in that sense, you know, that was our thinking from the very early stage in Australia, which is how do we reduce down your functional scope and get that down to something really small? How do we get started in a matter of days as opposed to weeks or months in traditional development how do we assemble development teams really rapidly and you know how do we spin up teams so we can get a whole diverse range of ideas off the ground and you know and the other thing is we weren't really stuck in the dogma of silicon valley thinking where you know it's still today i believe you know the the main way of thinking is go away first thing you do is find a technical co-founder build a team of engineers um, hire some marketers and spit blow a couple of million dollars before you even know if you have a product that actually the market wants and there's a problem, there's a problem market fit, uh, problem, uh, product problems fit. So I think that the most important thing for us as a business is that we continue to do what we're doing, but obviously constantly iterating and constantly being responsive to the market. And there certainly are some differences um, and we've had to make minor tweaks. You know, there's different sophistication levels of clients, a lot more stakeholders from different sorts of investors, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, it, it, it's very, it's a very similar market. Mark, can you tell us some of the uh, companies you're dealing with at the moment, what they're doing? Um, one of my favorite products we're working on right now is an app in, in America called Rescue Medical. Um, it's a really interesting product which allows um, doctors to utilize geolocation to be able to communicate with each other more efficiently, to be able to um, to be able to pass on information more efficiently, and to be able to connect with patients. We're also working on another great product out here called Doctor Connect. So it's almost like Skype. Um, for doctors. So as opposed to actually going in and meeting with the traditional doctor in a GP clinic, you can actually stream in high definition um, and speak with a specialist who may literally be the best in the world at their thing, at their particular specialty, but you can't get in your local market. You know, they, they may be a dollar or two a minute to speak to that person. You can get on video chat. You can send all your information across in a secure environment, and it can literally be as good as going to see the doctor. So, you know, that's an exciting platform we're working on. We see a massive number of startups here that are working in the med tech space um, and health tech. Um, and the reason that is, I think, is because the American healthcare system 
has a number of challenges that perhaps we don't have in Australia. So would you say healthcare is the booming area for startups? It, it certainly is one of them. I mean, there is a lot of them. I mean, we've got clients that are working on fin- financial technology, fintech. We've got a lot of health tech. Um, we've got a lot of clients working on, you know, educational technology solutions. Um, I think that where we're at right now is a very exciting place because literally the industries that were created 100, 150 years ago, every single one of them is literally being reinvented. You look at the taxi industry through Uber, you look at the hotel industry through Airbnb, literally these massive trends that we're seeing, you know, collaborative consumption, sharing economy, um, these kind of things, you know, the, the power of the power of you know the internet and, and and almost democratizing a lot of information has allowed for some really powerful you know platforms and solutions and technologies and apps that you know couldn't have been possible ten years ago. Apple just announced a research kit that would be a further uh, stimulus to that kind of area, wouldn't it? Yeah, so we're very excited um, about the new um, the Apple developer kit that came out for the Apple Watch this morning. Um, we saw some demos about how the different apps that were um, available. We saw a demo of Uber, what Facebook looks like. And it's a very exciting product because um, it's almost something that applies to people in, you know, micro time where as opposed to opening up their phone and checking something and, you know, checking five or six seconds, we're lo- literally talking about getting information in the moment. So, you know, the Apple Watch is going to be very useful for things where people are using it and, you know, bringing out a phone is going to be arduous. So things like text messaging, things like ordering an Uber, things like checking Facebook messaging, these kind of things are perfect for for an iWatch and may not be as suited to the mobile phone. But we're just seeing them almost like as a compatible thing. And certainly with our clients that we're working with, both in Australia, Silicon Valley, and other places around the world, we're seeing the Apple Watch as complementary complementary um, to the actual um, iPhone. Well, the exciting thing I find about the Apple medical research tool is that Apple has just sold, they've sold their 700th million iPhone. That's one hell of a research base. Sure is. It sure is. And we're really excited to see, you know, we've seen, you know, with the health um, sections of the iPhone, um, we've seen, you know, different apps tap into that data, um, making it more efficient to collect data and source it from different apps. And it, it really is tying into another one of those massive trends, which is that the data hacking kind of side of things where people are actually changing their behaviors and changing the way they live by tracking absolutely everything about their lives. Um, so this is almost like the positive side of technology that's often not talked about in the news where, you know, you can actually easily track the number of steps, um, medical vitals, all these kind of things are becoming much easier to monitor on a day-by-day basis and actually allow positive behavioral changes. So, and, and of course, you know, Apple's got an incredible repository of that data and be very interesting to see how they use that. Mark and Mike, thank you very much for your time. It was our pleasure. Thanks so much, Kate. Well, there you go, how to be successful in almost no time at all. It's fascinating stuff. Now, Nick Gruen and uh, innovation. Nicholas Gruen, you have some views about where we're heading with innovation. Tell us about it. Uh, well, there are they're views about where we should head with innovation, whether we will or not, we'll see. But, uh, you know, the new Prime Minister has uh, identified this as a key priority. So uh, uh, let's, see where we, let's see where it ends up. I was uh, talking to the ADC, the Australian Divorce Connection, yesterday and uh, was asked to talk about innovation and arranged my um, talk under three propositions. And those propositions are, it's not the private 
or it's not private or public initiative, it's how they're put together. Uh, that is, it's not the private sector or the public sector, it's how we put them together. It's not the things, it's the interface between them. Uh, and it's not the system, it's how it's transformed. So uh, I, pro I might well have spoken to you about each of those, but can sort of try and illustrate each of them for you if you would like. Well, please do that. I mean, tell us about the first. So we, we spend a lot of our time in pretty inane, sort of ideologically positioned argument about, you know, whether something's more free market or less free market. And it seems to me that what almost invariably matters is how you fit those things together. Virtually everything we look at now is, has got very substantial public involvement and very substantial private involvement. One of my criticisms of the red the, the the red tape cutting agenda is not that we shouldn't cut red tape we should but that we shouldn't think of it as uh, simply making the world more free market we have to understand that regulation and increasing regulation is part of the world that we live in part of delivering both economic well-being and environmental well-being for instance or economic output and prosperity from a firm as well as occupational health and safety investor protection and so on it goes so the the art is not to imagine that you can take the world to some more free marketplace, but basically get better at regulation. The particular thing I was talking about with regard to the public and the private sector was to talk about an idea that uh, an idea that I've developed over a number of years is quite important to the way I think, and that is that more and more on the internet we're seeing public goods privately provided. Google is a public good privately provided. Facebook is. Those are provided for profit, but Wikipedia is a public good and that's privately provided through uh, philanthropy. The reason all of those things can be so easily provided by the private sector is that by spending a very small amount of money, you can create massive public value. So on the back of my envelope, Google creates about a trillion dollars worth of value and it gets by on 60,000, sorry, 60 billion dollars worth of advertising revenue. That's, in other words, it monetizes, uh, turns to its own revenue, just 6% of the value that it creates. And Wikipedia, likewise, does vastly more good for the world than the 6 million or so per year it used to take to run the platform. It may cost more now, I don't know. And that amount can be raised philanthropically. Now, there must exist a whole class of goods they might be more important than Google and Wikipedia, which can't really uh, thrive on that model of purely free. So I would liken them to the state that Google would be in if it had chosen to market itself as a private good. In other words, if Google did what is quite easy for it to do, which is to say, we're not going to give you our services if you don't pay us money and the whole thing is behind a paywall. So what do those goods look like? Well, one that I kind of came upon is, is a website called 23andMe. 23andMe is a private 
uh, genome, it's consumer genomics for $99. They will provide you with a partial analysis of your genome and then they will tell you lots of things about it. They'll be able to tell you if you have any markers for particular cancers and, and who your relatives are and a whole bunch of things like that. And that's a business that could be a Google. In other words, in terms of its significance, it could be incredibly important for research, for people's well-being and so on. But it's got a million customers out of a target market of, say, two billion rich people on the planet. And I would argue that that should happen, that that should be a public-private partnership, that something like Medicare would be perfectly placed to bulk build a service for doctors to nudge people into 23andMe and all sorts of spin-off innovation benefits and medical safety benefits and medical cost benefits would spin off that. So that's a big idea. It's not even that expensive, but that's a really big innovation idea. And the point of using it is not just to say, here's a good idea, but the principle is it's not free market. It's not government. It's a a clever way of putting those things together. And I think we can, I can come up with examples, not as cool as that one, not as big as that one, but I can come up with lots of similar examples in building the digital goods for the, the, the digital public goods for the 21st century using something like public-private partnerships. Which means that governments would have to actually make the public infrastructure more readily available for private companies. Yeah, but, but they've also got to, I mean, to do this, you have to be trying to do that very thing. So you can't just sort of build stuff and see what happens. So, you know, governments build roads and then factories end up on the roads and houses end up on the roads and the workers and the factories connect and the government doesn't have to have a terribly elaborate plan for that to happen. It's just providing pure infrastructure here. The government is saying this project, which is to build a really extensive genomic database uh, on opt-in principles and so on. This is a project that's worth worth pursuing. It doesn't, as I said, it, I don't think it has to put much money up. It basically needs to get Medicare to do the analysis to say that it is worth it to the health system at $50 a unit, that is $50 for Leon Gettler, $50 for Nicholas Gruen, to, for the health system to have our genomes because then they can work out that I'm more likely to get prostate cancer and so I get screened every two years and you're less likely to get it and you get screened every five years, for instance. So it's, um, it's, it's government as a fosterer of projects and as a partner in projects, uh, but not a pure deliverer of projects because a private company would be probably much better at delivering that front end of the website and engaging people in working out what the, what, what's most useful to them about their genome and the system can sit behind that and do all sorts of fantastically useful things with the data, connecting it to diagnose, medical diagnosis, medical research, pharmacovigilance and the essentially drive the, the, personal, the personal medical revolution, the, the revolution that is just starting up where you get a particular drug for a particular condition which is predicated on your genome and what's going to work for you. But uh, with, with government budgets under stress, particularly health budgets, uh, could yep. you see, say, government saying, OK, we'll provide this service for you, but we want a slice of your takings? Um, well, yeah, but a lot of the kind of intellectually interesting stuff is how you configure this 
public-private partnership, often I think it's quite hard. That's part of the problem to work out really compelling terms on which the government and the private sector collaborate. By compelling, I mean terms that make sense as a system, not compelling because they make money for the government or the private sector, but because they address social needs in optimising the role of the government and the private sector. The private sector wants to make money. Uh, the, the government sector wants a, the most efficient system it can. I would be astonished if this, uh, this asset... Uh, for each person that Medicare insures, every Australian, that this asset, if this asset isn't worth $50 to them, I'd be very surprised in terms of lower health costs into the future. It's a capital asset that costs $50 to buy this capital asset. And for the rest of your life, the system knows more about you uh, and can around that knowledge deliver to you better services that'll mean that you spend less time in hospital and all of those kinds of things. I think that's enough of a dividend for the public sector. In other types of public-private partnership, perhaps it isn't. Uh, that's enough of the of dividend for the public sector. And then, the, then there's all the research infrastructure that it creates and a private provider can can provide the website and the public engagement as 23andMe does right now. And indeed, the government can actually make savings in their health budget as a result of it. That's right. That's right. Savings in the budget and also better. You know, there are two elements to doing things better. One is saving money and the other is doing what you do better. And uh, there would be a, a nice juicy mix of both of those things if we if we went in this direction. The other thing you would do is that 23andMe, this $99 service, which I'm, you know, I'm asserting would cost maybe $50 if done en masse, uh, this is a partial genomic sequence. So at the same time, you build a national infrastructure so we can look up, you've opted into the system and said, yeah, that's a good thing for me to do. We, uh, if I'm a doctor, I key in Leon Gettler, it connects me to your genome and helps me with diagnosis of your, whether you, you've got a cold or leukemia or whatever. But then we decide that you need a full genomic analysis. Now, you might be a pensioner or Medicare might pay for that. That costs about a 1000 bucks, Or you might just decide that you want it because, you know, it hasn't come up as a thing that Medicare will pay for, but you want it. Either way, when we do it, that can be housed in the data infrastructure, in the genomic data infrastructure for Australia. And we gradually build a better and better resource and, and everyone can connect to it. Doctors, researchers, inappropriately anonymized forms or identified forms, depending on whether someone's a doctor or a researcher and so on. Nicholas Green, that sounds very exciting. Let's hope that happens. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. I only got I only got to the first of my sayings. Maybe we'll carry on with the next ones <laughs> right. on the next on the well, next exciting podcast. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you. Okay. So, what do you think, Leon? It's a good theory if it ever comes to fruition. Well, it it sounds fascinating, and it would work really well. You can imagine all the budget savings that would produce too. Oh, enormous! Yeah, it really would, and improve the uh, the health system just for that one thing. Yes. And now the news. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, to China and the profits of China's industrial companies have nosedived, falling the steepest level since 2011, according to official stats. Data from China's National Bureau of Statistics showed that profits fell 8.8% in August. Producers of coal, oil and metals are doing it the hardest. Coal mining profits crashed 64.9% 
in the first eight months of this year. So they more than halved. Oil and gas profits plummeted 67.3% and ferrous metals producers were down 51.6%. And according to data compiled by Bloomberg, it's the sharpest fall since the Chinese government began releasing numbers in October 2011. And the trend has been attributed to producer prices, which have slumped to a six-year low. Now to other news, and uh, German prosecutors have begun investigating former Volkswagen chief uh, Martin Winterkorn's role in the rigging of emissions tests. And the prosecutor's office said the probe is into allegations of fraud in the sale of cars with manipulated emissions data. Now, Winterkorn, of course, resigned last week after almost nine years at the helm of the German automaker. And his successor, Matthias Müller from Porsche, has agreed to have a US law firm investigate the matter. But the German fraud investigation is into... In- is in addition to investigations by the US Justice Department, which could see criminal charges being laid against Volkswagen executives. And this could actually lead into criminal charges being laid against Winterkorn, Gary. Yeah, it's it's a huge blow to the uh, German automotive industry. Now, when he resigned last week, Winterkorn issued a statement saying he was unaware of a company's efforts to dupe emissions, but he accepted responsibility for the irregularities. He's sitting where, where the buck stops, isn't he? Whether he actually did it is another thing. And the bigger question, did he know? Now to Australia and uh, the lifting consumer confidence following Malcolm Turnbull's ascension to the nation's top job has proved to be short-lived. The ANZ Roy Morgan weekly consumer confidence index fell 3.4% last week after jumping 8.7% the previous week when Turnbull won the Liberal leadership and became Prime Minister. Now ANZ Chief Economist Warren Hogan said the reversal in confidence isn't surprising at all because of a week before's uh, record bounce. So there was only one way to go. No, I think that's quite healthy. People are starting to get a more realistic view of the problems Turnbull's are building. Yeah, and the ANZ is saying basically the government now has to get its um, finances in order and then come out with some vision and some reform package for the future. Yeah, and a lot's going to depend on Scott Morrison. Absolutely. Turnbull has decided he does not need guidance from Tony Abbott's chief business advisor, Morris Newman. Now, Morris Newman, a climate change sceptic, his term as chairman of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council has expired, and he has not been reappointed. Surprise, surprise. Now, Newman was embroiled in controversy earlier this year after accusing the UN of using global warming as a tool to create an authoritarian world with concentrated political authority. Now, also, another interesting thing is after more more than 30 years after the Hawke government negotiated the accord, Prime Minister Turnbull has arranged a summit, which is happening today with business and unions, to break the political deadlock over reforms amid concerns about a looming recession. So they're going to be talking about issues like tax and productivity. Um, and there's already a bit of a move, movement towards um, at least conciliation because uh, Labor has, ALP, has shifted its position on the uh, China free trade. It's seen- seems to be. It seems yeah, it to be moving like in that direction. They're, they're certainly negotiating now, so it seems to be heading in that direction. But I might add that um, he has his Turnbull has his work cut out for him with the new uh, uh, with the IMF warning that the economic slowdown suffered by Australia since the end of the mining boom may have further to run. The IMF says the weak commodity price outlook could subtract one percentage point annually from economic growth in commodity exporting countries like Australia over 2015-2017 compared with the preceding three years. And in energy exporting countries, the drag is estimated to be even greater, 2.25 percentage points on average over the same period. And that reflects a sharp turn downturn in oil prices over the past year. 
and the IMF is urging in its World Economic Outlook that policymakers have to be realistic about their economic growth potential, and it says countries have to tackle structural reforms like removing infrastructure bottlenecks, improving the business climate, and enhancing the quality of education. And it's important to remember that annual Australian growth has slowed to just 2% as of June, which is well below its long-term average of 3.25%, and other commodity-based countries like Canada and Brazil are already in recession. And it's a big warning for uh, for us in Australia. There's a kind of stagnation around here that uh, needs to be broken. Yeah. Now, um, this week uh, we saw $56 billion wipe off the Australian share market. That was on Tuesday when stocks plunged below the critical 5,000 point for the second time this month. It was a horror day. It saw a sharp sell-off in resources stocks following a 30% share price crash for global commodities Glencore, giant Glencore in London the night before. And that created an equity route, sending the Australian market to its lowest level in two years. Now, Glencore's problem is it's being squeezed by China's slowing economy and a debt load of 30 billion US and a market value of just 16 billion US. So the debt is twice as big as what the company's worth. Yeah, the current value of it, unless the share price picks up. That's right. Now, the sell-off follows a warning from analysts. Now, Glencore's share price rebounded by almost 20% the next night after the company said it was financially solid, says no solvency issues, and it's so share price has been going up back up now. But the market is watching it closely. And I might add that uh, last night, the Australian share market finished its worst quarterly performance in four years with the benchmark index having lost 8% or 440 points over the three months through September. To some degree, I mean, this is nervousness of investors and, and the funds. Uh, well, it's right around the world. It is. Right around the world. All the funds are right down all around the world. And I think everyone is not so much sp- I think everyone is really spooked about debt. We were talking before about the China Free Trade Agreement and the Chinese ambassador to Australia, Ma Zhaozhu, has used a speech in Melbourne to address the political impasse of the FTA and has urged Australians to recognise its benefits. And speaking at a business function, Ambassador Ma compared the agreement signed 100 days ago to a baby that needed to be nurtured. And he said, his words were, this is an opportunity that should not be allowed to slip through our fingers, should not be allowed to slip away. Now... When we're talking about the negotiations, Prime Minister Turnbull said last week there'd been an initial phone conversation with opposition leader Bill Shorten. Uh, The two sides have yet to sit down and formally negotiate the issue, but they're talking at the moment. Which is a long way better than under Abbott. Interesting piece of news is the business news. Business software tools maker Atlassian, valued at over US $3 billion, has filed for an IPO and expects to debut on the US markets before the end of the year. And Atlassian filed its prospectus under the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, which permits companies with under US $1 billion in annual revenue to file their IPO paperwork confidentially. Atlassian has hired Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley to work on the offering. Now, Atlassian is based in Sydney, but it's got a big Silicon Valley presence and it's unique among software firms for funding its growth because it's profitable, Gary. It's making a lot of money, uh, but it's it. The IPO is in the US, not not locally. Well, that's where all the money is. Indeed. Now, the wave of consolidation um, continues to sweep through the Australian telco sector this week. It's been quite extraordinary. This follows TPG Telecom's uh, successful acquisition of uh, Ionet. And Telco's Vocus and M2 have announced plans for an all-script merger. And that deal will create 
Australia's fourth largest integrated telco. And the scheme of arrangement will see M2 shareholders receiving 1.625 VOCA shares for each M2 share. And combined, the two companies will be worth more than $3 billion, have a combined revenue of $1.8 billion, with an EBITDA of around $370 million in uh, FY16. And the combined entity would boast a, a product portfolio of retail internet, electricity, gas, corporate and wholesale internet, and IP voice, da- uh, data, data center, cloud services, international and domestic bandwidth, and dark fiber. And that's a very interesting thing because that's um, challenge to uh, NBN. Absolutely. Which leads me to the other one, which is interesting, is that Australia's third-ranked telco Vodafone, Hutchison, has struck a $1 billion partnership with the country's second biggest internet provider, TPG Telecom, which will see TPG's mobile customer base moving to Vodafone's network and boosting TPG's plans to become a fully-fledged telco in its own right. Now, as part of the deal, Vodafone will use TPG's Australia-wide network of dark fibre to carry the data generated by its mobile network, and TPG will spend up to 400 million bucks extending its fibre network, constructing about 4,000 kilometres of new dark fibre to Vodafone's 3,000 cell sites around the country and provide Vodafone customers with greater bandwidth and faster data speeds. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on Telstra. Um, and already Andy Penn, the new CEO there, has come out um, saying he's going to spend some money. He's prepared to sacrifice profit margins to stay in front. He's very determined, as well he might be. With this wave of consolidation and this 15-year deal brings TPG and Vodafone closer together. So in 15 years' time, with all the consolidation going through the industry, let's take a look at where TPG and uh, Vodafone are then. going to be very interesting. Voda is, of course, uh, a multinational company. It's very, very big in Europe. And uh, TPG will ride in on the strength of that as well. Metcash, um, investors are betting on more declines of Metcash's share price. Many doubt whether the struggling grocery wholesaler can survive. The onslaught from discount retailer Aldi. The IGA supply is the most shorted stock in the Australian share price, share market for 2015 so far, which means most investors think its share price is going to head south. And analysts are even predicting Metcash, whose shares have slid about 40% since January, will become extinct within a decade. Now, Aldi's successful low-cost model has also driven a fresh price war with major supermarkets and as a result, IGA outlets have been forced to price match Coles and Woolworths on as many products as possible. But I might say that Metcash Chief Executive Ian Morris told investors this week that Metcash was primed for a fight on price and convenience and with Aldi and he pointed out that Foodland and IGA supermarkets in South Australia and Western Australia, where Aldi is expanding into, were really strong. In fact, he says they're stronger there than they are in Victoria and New South Wales. Another piece of news is the founder and chair of embattled convenience store chain 7-Eleven, Russ Withers, has resigned after it was revealed that the company was chronically underpaying international students and other visa holders. And 7-Eleven chief executive Warren Wilmot is also, has also stood down following the scandal, and Withers will remain chairman of the group holding company. Final piece of news, Gary, is that David Jones' chief executive, Ian Nairn, is leaving the department store chain after only 14 months in the job. Now, Nairn has driven a significant improvement in sales since David Jones was bought by South African Woolworths Holdings in August. 2014. Woolworths says he's resigned for personal reasons. Nairn will stay on as advice for three months before his replacement. The head of general merchandise at UK retailer Marks & Spencer, John Dixon, moves to Sydney to step in. Their sales were the best they'd done in eight years. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. Next week, we're going to be talking to US coach Maxine Atong. Based down in the nice warm West Indies. That's right. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.